How many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? If you're charismatic, it just takes one. Both hands are already in the air. If you're Pentecostal, it takes 10. One to change the light bulb, and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness in the room. If you're a Presbyterian, it doesn't take any. Lights come and go as they're predetermined through God's perfect plan. If you're a Lutheran, we don't change anything around here, including light bulbs. If you're a Baptist, it takes about 15, one person to change it, 14 for three committees, some budget reports, and that's too deep. Is that too soft, too much? <laughs> if you're a Tulsa Bible Church, it just takes a Troy Cooper. Man, we just got one, we just got one guy. <laughs> Why do we have so many denominations? The last count that I read, somewhere around 2,000 denominations right here in the United States related to Christian roots. Across the world, multiply that exponentially, there's about 45,000 Christian denominations around the world. It was said of the Lutheran Reformation that it began in the cell of a monk. The Calvinistic Reformation began at the desk of a scholar, John Calvin. The Anabaptist Re Reformation began at a prayer meeting. Guys committed to prayer and to the Word of God. The English Reformation was different. The English Reformation was altogether political. I want to talk a little bit about the English Reformation this week, this morning, as we continue the sermon series, just short sermon series on church history, the events that led up to the Reformation, and also some of the things together that we'll talk about today is the events after it. The English Reformation was largely the work of the throne room of Henry VIII. And Henry VIII is a significant figure when you go back to the church in the 1500s and the 1600s. Henry VIII was attractive, of course, you can tell how he's standing up there. He was educated and he was accomplished. He was the father of the Royal Navy in Britain. He was a musician, he was a composer, he was an artist, he was a regular old Renaissance man. One of the most charismatic rulers to ever sit on the throne in England. But before his life is all said and done, if you remember the songs about him, he will marry six times, behead two of his wives, die in obesity, kill his best friend, and he fathered the very infamous Bloody Mary. Dickens would say, a most intolerable ruffian in a blot of blood and grease on the history of England was Henry VIII. Henry first married Catherine of Aragon, uh, not to be confused with any Lord of the Rings references. Aragorn is how you would pronounce that anyway. Uh, daughter of King Ferdinand in Spain. Henry was the product of, a, of an ally between England and Spain, which brought about the marriage with him and Catherine. From the very get-go, it was not a happy marriage. Queen Catherine provided a daughter to King Henry by the name of Mary, Mary I. But the problem was she didn't provide a male heir for this lovely king. Naturally, Henry asked the Holy Father, Clement VII, in Rome to annul the marriage so that he could find a woman that would provide him with a male heir. Despite an appeal from his best friend, Thomas More, you probably heard that name, 
who King Henry VIII will later kill because he didn't do what he wanted him to do, uh, he was able to annul the marriage through his friend, a new religious buddy by the name of Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was also the first to publish the uh, Book of Common Prayer. He told Henry that he should appeal to the universities, the Catholic universities. They would dig deep in the scrolls of English history and even in the text of scripture to find a way to get him out of his marriage. And they therefore provided a biblical reason that came out of the book of Leviticus and a political reason as well. They instituted an old act that says there should be no alliances formed with England, including religious alliances in Rome. Gave Henry the ability to turn his back on the Pope in Rome and do whatever he wanted to do. At the same time, the Reformed movement, particularly Luther's writing, Martin Luther's writing, was influencing a lot of England at the time of Henry VIII. Uh, the best Cambridge scholars and theologians gathered together at a place called the Inn of the White Horse. And at the tavern, over drinks, they would discuss is issues of theology and biblical teaching. They would read the writings of Luther. It was very well known. They actually, they called it Little Germany, even though it took place in England. Because of it, Henry had little resistance when he passed the Act of Supremacy, which effectively created a church in England that became the Church of England. No longer will churches in England submit to the Pope in Rome because Henry wanted to get out of his marriage. Now the head of the church is King Henry himself, and you have the very first inklings of an English national church. The church will not be Roman, it will be distinctly Anglo, an Anglo-Saxon church, or perhaps you've heard of an Anglican church, the Anglicana Ecclesia, which also is related uh, heavily with the Episcopalian church, the beginning of the Epis Episcopalians. Instead of a pope, they would appeal to the archbishop, it was Henry's friend, again, Thomas Cranmer. But Henry still needed a male heir to pass on the throne to. He wanted it to desperately stay into his family. Catherine did not provide that heir, so secretly he married Anne Boleyn. You guys might have seen a movie related to Anne of, Anne of a Thousand Days, perhaps. A little bit dated. Uh, she didn't provide a male heir to Henry either, only a daughter, and later Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth I. Anne is accused of adultery and incest. He was wife number two and wife number one that Henry had beheaded. Children, just close your ears, all right? It's okay. The day after Anne's ex execution, the day after Queen Anne's execution, Henry was engaged to another wife, wife number three, Jane Seymour. 10 days later, they married. She was the first to provide a male heir for Henry VIII. His name goes by Edward VI. And then uh, Edward VI dies actually early into his reign as king. Wife number four for Henry is Anne of Cleves. She was married, I got some pictures in case you guys, uh, before the days of photographs here. This one is Catherine, she's the Spaniard in the group. This one would be Anne, Queen Anne. Um, this one is going to be Anne of Cleves. Number three, eh, this one is, uh, I got Jane Seymour right there, not to be confused with Dr. Quinn, if you guys have ever seen that. Um, this one is Anne of Cleves, wife number four. She was married for political reasons. 
When the politics in Great Britain changed, in England changed, Henry got rid of her. The man that put Henry and Anne of Cleves together was also put to death for arranging the marriage. Wife number five is Catherine Howard, just going down the list. She's at the bottom in the, in the center. Henry eventually beheads her. Wife number six was Catherine Parr. Of the six wives, she is the one that leaves, leans heavily Protestant. Um, Catherine Parr actually wrote a book on lamentations, on the reality of sin in the life of a believer. And it was during this marriage to Catherine Parr that Henry himself dies. Needless to say, this guy's not going to be nominated for any Good Samaritan Awards anytime soon. Do you have your Bibles? Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. When you think about the history of the Church of England and Henry VIII, the thing that immediately comes to our minds is Solomon. Henry would have learned a lot if he would have just read the story of Solomon in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The wisest man who ever lived on the face of the earth, as Travis reminded us in our devotion yesterday at our elder meeting. Um, he learned a lot through his lifetime. Like Henry VIII, he was very successful. He was a builder. He accomplished many things in his lifetime, but um, he struggled. He struggled with to find his ultimate satisfaction in God and in God alone. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 9, Solomon writes, I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered. Um, that, that's the word for looking at his life in the mirror. He looked at his own life as a reflection. He considered everything that he had done. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. They say that history is the endless cycle of people trying to find satisfaction in anyone and everything except God. History is the endless cycle of people trying to find satisfaction in anyone and anything besides God. That's the story of Henry VIII, and it's a sad, sad story. Although he didn't like the Pope, mainly because he couldn't control the Pope, Henry didn't like Martin Luther either, and he actually wrote an uh, article defending the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. He called Luther a poisonous serpent and a wolf of hell, and because of it, the Pope that didn't allow him his annulment in marriage gave Henry VIII the title of Defender of the Faith. Today, the king in England, if you keep up with the monarchy, holds that title, the Defender of the Faith. During Henry's reign, the church in England was distinctly Catholic. The one son, the one male heir that he was given is Edward VI. Edward VI came to the throne, and his royal advisors, he was very young when he came to the throne, and he ruled a very short time. His royal advisors were mainly Protestant, and there was a Protestant leaning in England in the days of Edward VI. Young Edward was a reforming king. 
He allows the priests to marry instead of saying, keeping their celibate vows, which sounds a lot like Luther. He changes the mass from Latin to English, which also sounds a lot like Luther. He produced doctrine called the 42 Articles that leaned heavily in Protestant, a Protestant direction. Things were looking very hopeful under Edward VI for a Protestant England and for something else to change with the Catholic Church. If King Edward had not been young, sickly, and weak, everything would have been different for the history of England and the history of the church. As it turned out, he dies after a six-year reign, and there is no other male heir to the throne of England after him. You remember the first Queen Catherine from Spain? She didn't provide the male heir, but she had a daughter by the name of Mary I. Mary I is the next in line as queen in England. When Henry figured out how to annul that marriage to Catherine, Princess Mary was treated like an illegitimate child. If the marriage was annulled, the children from the marriage were illegitimate. They weren't in line to the throne. Therefore, she couldn't stand the rightful heir, Edward VI, if you want to go that way. Edward VI was her nemesis to the throne, and she wanted revenge. Let me finish this statement. Hell hath no fury. Can I say that? It's not, okay, listen, listen, listen. It's not a comment about all women. It's not a comment about women in general. It's a comment about Mary the First. You and I know her as Bloody Mary. Her goal in life was to return England to Catholicism by whatever means necessary. She restored the feast to the saints. If they were married, she forced the priests to annul their marriages, to walk away from their wives and from their families and to renew their celibate Catholic vows. In 1554, England officially returns to a Catholic roots and Protestants get out of there. Why? Because Bloody Mary will go on to kill 300 of them in four years. In four short years, she kills 300 Protestants. Two of the most shocking were two bishops, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. She couldn't stand one guy, though, more than any of the rest of them, and it was Thomas Cranmer. For Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury that Henry had put there, one of his good friends, against to get away from the Pope in Rome and to get away from the authority of the church in Rome. Cranmer represented everything to Queen Mary that she didn't want the Protestants and the church, or the Catholics and the church to be about. She kept Cranmer alive and made him watch execution after execution, bishop after bishop being burned at the stake, Ridley and Latimer being the, the worst of the two. But more than that, she sent Catholic advisors to his cell, to his prison where they kept him to convince him to recant his faith over and over again. Uh, Cranmer finally said to himself, you know what, even if I do truly believe in Protestant doctrine, this isn't worth it. If she wants me to do something, if she wants me to sign a statement saying that I'm Catholic, fine, I'll sign the statement. Uh, Cranmer watched Latimer and Ridley burned horrifically at the stake. It scarred him. And so he recanted his Protestant faith and agreed with the Catholic faith. She still killed him. On the way to being burned, as he was hanging over the fire, he said, this is hardcore. This is the hand that offended God. 
He extends it into the flame first, and it burns as the rest of his body consumed the rest of his, or as the rest of the flames consumed the rest of his body. Another person sacrificed in the flames of religious intolerance. After four years of Bloody Mary on the throne, it passed to Elizabeth I. Elizabeth had seen enough of the martyrs. She's seen enough of the killings. She wants a peaceful England. She responds to Bloody Mary with a more peaceful reign. She kills just about as many as, as Mary did, actually. She just reigned for twice as long as she did, and her attack was more on the Catholic side. Elizabeth I accepted the Bible as the final authority, which is a Protestant doctrine. She accepted the two sacraments of the church as the Lord's Supper and baptism, which is also a Protestant stance in your ecclesiology. Doctrinally, she adhered to the 39 articles which leaned Protestant in their direction and in their theology, but they weren't the 42 articles originally proposed by Cranmer and the rest of the Protestants. Her theology wanted to go and kind of straddle the fence. She appeased the Catholics enough with the wording of their theology, but she also appeased the Protestants enough, saying that we can exist together. If you went to church, it had the liturgy and it had the feel of a Catholic church with the Protestant theology. She developed what's called the Via Medea, or the middle way, the middle road. It was a settlement, came to be known as the Elizabethan settlement, and led to the Anglican church and the Episcopalian church. If you go to either one of those churches, they have the feel, the look of a Catholic church, but their doctrine is primarily Protestant in its teaching. Since Bloody Mary was dead, many Protestants returned to England who had fled from her regime. They were not happy with the religious compromise that Elizabeth and the Elizabethan settlement had made. Imagine if you were holding on to Protestant theology, Protestant truth, but you came to church on Sunday and everything looked and smelled very Catholic. You would probably be a little troubled by that. In fact, there was a group of them who wanted so desperately for the form and the liturgy of the church to reflect the Protestant doctrine that they argued for the purity of the Protestant theology, even in the liturgy. We call them Puritans. And I want you just to hold on to that, all right? How did the Catholics ultimately respond to the Reformation? You've got a Bloody Mary, you've got a Queen Elizabeth, You've got Henry VIII, who is distinctly Catholic. You've got Protestant reformers and the White Horse Inn and all the theology that Luther has influenced England, England by. The Catholic Church didn't really, and they didn't immediately respond well to Protestantism. They were more concerned about politics, what countries were winning and what wars, what land was being dominated by what church, during one of uh, the political wars that was raging in Europe at the time, a man came forth of Catholic persuasion by the name of Ignatius of Loyola. There's Bloody Mary. I mean, just look at the, I don't know. She just, she looks like she's angry at the world there. I don't know how accurate these little things are, but there's Bloody Mary, there's Elizabeth I. Um, are these sleeves coming back? 
in style? I think they are. are I think they are. Ignatius of Loyola. During one of the political wars uh, Catholics fought, a man arose by the name of Ignatius of Loyola. Loyola. He was fighting for the Catholic Church and for the cause of Catholicism uh, during a time when something brand new was being introduced in Europe. Somebody figured out how they could put gunpowder to a flashing pan and shoot something out called cannonballs. Ignatius of Loyola was hit by a cannonball, tore off one of his, dismembered one of his legs, actually, and in his recovery and his spiritual solace, he turned to a, a faith in Christ. He became a very deeply spiritual man. He became a disciplined soldier for the Catholic resolve, even though he had lost one, one leg. Loyola was a stormtrooper in the service of the Pope. He was summoned by Pope Paul III to do whatever was necessary to change the Protestant leanings that were happening in Europe and Great Britain back to Catholicism. He was told to win over the heathen by whatever means and whatever way that he could win them over and convert the Protestant back to Catholicism. He formed what was called the Society of Jesus. These were chivalrous soldiers, mobile, versatile, ready to go wherever they were needed, whenever they were needed. We call them the Jesuits. Have you heard of these guys before? Writing to Thomas Jefferson, John Adams would say later on, if any congregation of men could merit eternal punishment on earth and in hell, it is the company of this guy, Ignatius of Loyola. If you didn't convert back to Catholicism, if you didn't want to listen to their gospel, gospel message, this is called Christian imperialism, folks. Uh, we're going to get Catholicism to spread regardless of how you feel about it, even if we have to kill you to do it. Loyola and his buddy, Francis Xavier, rode full gallop into India, Southeast Asia, Japan, even into South America. Some of the biggest Catholic Reformation movements across the world were thanks to the Jesuits. In many instances, they brought Christian imperialism. They were really stuck with how do we convert these pagans? And there were outlandish paganism that they ran into in international countries. Uh, theologically, they were Catholic, thoroughly Jesuit response to the, to the Reformation of the Protestants, they came up with something that was known as the Council of Trent. You've probably heard of it. It's dated back to 1545 at the beginning, and it takes years and years for the Council of Trent, 1563, before they solidified um, their theology and their response to the Protestants. The council members met in three main sessions from 1545 to 1563 and everything the Protestant Reformation stood for, everything the Reformers held on tightly to, doctrine of justification and salvation, their ecclesiology, the authority of God found solely and ultimately in the Scripture and in the Bible alone. The Council of Trent and the Catholics were adamantly opposed to it. They argued that justification is not external, an alien justification that comes only through Christ, but that in order for a person to be justified, you had to believe in Jesus plus works, plus an internal righteousness. You never knew, in fact, if you were ultimately justified until you got to the end of your life, if you stayed faithful enough to the works of the Catholic Church, to attend the Mass, to take the sacraments, 
to do all the religious proceedings that they wanted you to do week in and week out. Justification was not Romans 5, chapter 1. Therefore, we are justified by faith. We are declared righteous by faith in the work of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross alone. The Catholic Church said that's not enough. You've got to live a holy life, a moral life yourself. And unless you do it, you are not justified. People earned their righteous standing before God. Ignatius of Loyola put it this way, pray as though everything depended on God alone, but act as though it depended on you to be saved for your salvation. The Council of Trent believed that authority came from Scripture, the Bible, and the church. God's holy truth found in the Bible is not above the church, infallible man's interpretation of those passages, but they are on equal level. The Bible says one thing, the church says another thing. We are going to adhere to the Bible and to our traditions. The Protestant doctrine of authority firmly says that mankind and their interpretations stand nothing to the truth of Scripture. Scripture will always have precedence in our doctrine, our theology, and our practice for everything that we do as Protestants. The Catholic Church didn't believe that. Authority was on the same level as Scripture. Trent also, also argued that the Pope should remain as the Pope in Rome, that the seven sacraments should remain in the churches, indulgences should continue, even though there's no biblical support for that. The sacrifice of the Mass would continue, earning your internal righteousness, uh, confession, and, and your acts of penance to God. Many, many thought that Luther and Calvin, their argument was so biblically in tune to the truth of God's word and to rightful theology. Many people thought that the Protestant theology was just going to come into the Catholic Church and it would reform it and it would change it altogether. The Council of Trent, when they declared what they declared over all those years of coming together, and they couldn't even really come together quickly because they were so concerned about political affairs and the wars in Europe. The Council of Trent made it adamant that they are anti-Protestant at every turn of the page. There is no way that Protestants are going to play nice with Catholics, and it's in their writing. Now, let me just disclaimer here. You will meet people who go to the Catholic Church who I believe are genuine Christians. They trust Jesus, his death and resurrection on the cross, on the cross, his resurrection three days later for the forgiveness of their sins, they trust Jesus alone. When you talk to them and you ask them, what about the Council of Trent? What about what it says in your catechism? Most of them say they go with the spirit of the catechism rather than the letter of the catechism. To which you just say, well, why do you have the catechism in the first place then, if you're just going to go with the spirit of it? There are some genuine Catholics out there who trust in Christ and Christ alone. They just really don't know their theology that well. Maybe they're not in tune to those catechisms that are out there. Maybe they've never thought about justification being separate from sanctification in those areas. But just something to consider as you, as you work through this. Um, the Council of Trent came to the conclusion that this is a stalemate conflict in the church. This thing with Catholics and Protestants is not going to get figured out. 
they are staying staunch on their views. Protestants are staying staunch on their views. And if you want to go anywhere in Scripture to kind of work through this, the pastoral epistles are really the best place to go for the authority and what the church should be in your ecclesiology. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus what to do when you establish churches. And over and over again, he talks about putting elders in place and deacons in place, the role of a pastor and the role of scripture. Over and over again, you're gonna hear the doctrine of grace being preached in the pastoral epistles. You're gonna hear Paul appeal to the word of God. You study the word, show yourself approved. You preach the word. Here's what we're gonna do, here's what we're free to do in our services, but here's what we're not free to do. And ultimately, the authority is gonna fall on scripture and in scripture alone. Catholicism could not beat Protestantism. Protestantism could not overthrow Rome. There's no way forward, and so here's what's gonna happen. Christendom as an era is effectively over, and we're gonna continue to fight this thing out until one side kills all the rest of them. You have religious wars that are sparked in Europe that are the bloodiest and the goriest wars that you will see until World War I. They say after the Thirty Years' War that four, between 4.5 and 8 million religious people were killed in the span of a handful, a hundred years of war going back and forth over Catholicism and, and Protestantism. 1562 through 1598, for 36 years, France is engaged in a civil war for 36 years. It was between the Catholics and the Calvinists coming out of close to Geneva. In 1560 through 1618, for 58 years, in the Netherlands, the Calvinists also fought the Catholics of Spain. Largely, the Protestants were winning in the north. But 1618 through 60, 1648 was the bloodiest war for 30 years. This is where you have, it wasn't long before the 30-year war that you had the invention of rifling. They figured out how to make a rifle and a rifle ball that you could shoot from a long distance and do a lot of damage. This is the time during the 30 years war where they figured out how to put a cannon behind a team of horses and put them on the battlefield. This was an awful time in European history. They said that 35% of the population in Germany was dead after the 30-year war. 50% in some German towns of people just completely exterminated. If you go to Great Britain, if you go to Europe today, and you see empty church after empty church, and you see Protestant theology really struggling, this is why. They fought and they killed each other until all the blood have been, could have been spent, and finally they said, we've got to figure this out. We've got to come to some other agreement. This war of religion is not going to end. Germany was largely Lutheran. Catholics fought to retain it and get it back. France and Switzerland were largely Protestant. Again, coming out of Geneva outward. The Netherlands and Belgium experienced the Dutch Reformation fought for it over and over again. The Protestants form a league called the League of German Princes, and they fought the Catholic League over and over again, the imperial forces. In 1648, 
they had to just take a reprieve. And it was called the Peace of, of Westphalia. Most of us don't know this history. In 1648, enough people came together and said, listen, we gotta do something different. And it changed and it initiated something that, that we really do take for granted in America. And we need to think more carefully about. And it's called religious tolerance. For the first time, the phenomena of nation states holding to their individual religion and their individual regions was established. Matters were not aided after this. Of course, you have a, a new idea that happened around the time of the 30-year war as well. We call it the, um, the Spanish conquistadors, if you've ever heard of them. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? And the word got out that he found gold, and a lot of it. Spanish conquistadors wanted all of it, all of it that they could get their hands on. It was the most violent gold rush in the history of the world. In 1521, you've got a man by the name of Hernando Cortez fighting for the Catholic cause, equipped with horses, armor, gunpowder. He destroyed a major empire in Central and South America called the Aztec Empire, all in the name of Catholic Christianity. 1533, Francisco Pizarro murdered the monarch of the Incas. Their hands were after gold, what they could get from them. Their hearts were clung to the idols of the Virgin Mary. With the new Catholic expansion and the exploration of the world, many things were happening in North America. In the North, they realized that there's a lot of money to be made in Canada by trading furs. In the South, they realized that gold rush was still on. People were trying to explore and find more gold. Right in the middle, you had uh, two amazing products that really transformed not only American history, but European history as well. The first product was called cotton. They were farming something in the eastern shores of America, and they liked it. They used it to make cloth. It transformed everything, mercantile industry and businesses in the United States even to this day. The other thing was this big, leafy, green plant called wacko tobacco. They got their hands on this stuff that if you pull the weeds and crush it up into little pieces and you put it in a pipe, it makes it go a little nutso and crazy, and England loved it. They absolutely loved it. And it affected a lot of the expansion of Christianity on the American shores. Historians will separate between two camps at this point of time coming to settle in America and Christianity in America. There's the pilgrims that came first and then the Puritans that came after them. The pilgrims were much more conservative and much more committed to their beliefs than the Puritans, uh, if you can say that. <clears throat> pilgrims were a group of separatists. They left England because they couldn't stand what was going on. They didn't want anything of an, of an Elizabethan settlement at all. Even the, the sound of it turned them off from Christian theology. So they went to Holland, and then a group of 100 of them eventually came to America. When they arrived in Holland first, the culture and the language was difficult for them to grasp. They saw their history, they saw their, their families being changed so drastically that they had to do something different. 1608, 100 pilgrims set sail from America aboard a ship called the Mayflower, those are the pilgrims. Uh, Puritans were, most, were more hopeful of the situation in England. 
they were still hanging around to try to reform the church. They wanted the, the Protestant theology to affect these Elizabethan settlements as much as possible. They were non-separatists, not like the pilgrims. They were Episcopalians. They were the Anglicans. And they continued their efforts in reforming the church. And they had a chance of, of really doing it well in England and getting established there, but internal dissensions didn't allow them to anchor down too long in England. Something about Protestants, and I just, I say this little tongue-in-cheek because I am one. We're really, really good at causing division in churches. We're not really great at building things, including unifying behind a united effort for Christianity that goes deeper than individual perspectives and, and wants and likes that we have in our congregations. This is exactly what you saw in England. If the Puritans could have got over some of those internal dissensions, American history and American church would have been completely 100% different. They couldn't. And so many of them came over. They wanted to create a new, a brand new society, a well-ordered society, where families were taught the scriptures from a very early age. They believed in a new birth, a doctrine of a new birth by the Holy Spirit, but they wanted to do everything they could for their children to be born into the church, still hanging on to a, a semblance of, of infant baptism. Families that were committed to the truth of scripture. They were Calvinistic in their theology. They wanted everything to be done for the glory of God. They were a people of the scriptures. They brought their Geneva Bibles to America, largely influenced by Calvin's Geneva. And the Coverdale Bible, which, as you heard from Scott Susong, was largely the work of William Tyndale and all the work that he did in the text to bring us the Coverdale Bible. They came to build the city of God in the land of Canaan, where they met a lot of Canaanites that go by the name of Native Americans. They considered themselves God's new Israel, and they were going to conquer America in the same way that Israel conquered the Promised Land. They were deeply committed to their morals. And an American journalist even quipped about the Puritan movement, that the Puritan had the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy in their theology. And they didn't like it. You got the name of uh, John Owen, you've got the Richard Baxters that brought their Puritan theology to America, John Bunyan, the Pilgrim's Progress and Cotton Mather. They believed if they were committed to their family and they kept on having babies and having more babies that they could expand Christianity on these new shores. They taught them theology. They started churches. They preached the word from their Coverdale Bibles and they kept having babies and having more babies. They expanded and they really anchored down their religious philosophies, bringing the grace of the New Testament, their Calvinistic theology to America, and kept on having babies and having more babies. The hope was that these babies would become godly men and women. The reality is that many of them did not. And then, again, just a disclaimer here. You can be a, the best godly parent in the world and do everything absolutely right, and you can still have a wayward kid that doesn't trust Christ and who goes his own way. Uh, the Puritans are a great example of that happening. 
You can't legislate morality. You can't legislate the doctrine of salvation. The Puritans were trying to accomplish something that the Catholic Church had failed to do, and they failed to learn the lessons of a bloody European history. They thought they could expand and they could conquer with an imperialistic mentality without the killing, the reproducing of the gospel through the reproducing of children in their families, and it didn't work. Just as involved in politics as America as they were in the church, uh, Cotton Mather was one of the very first. He's a good depiction of, of the pastors that were anchored here from the Puritan movement. When his father was away in England, rumors began to surface of a strange witchcraft that was happening in the church and in the town where Cotton Mather oversaw as a pastor. Four children of the same family began to ex experience and to exhibit strange inklings related to witchcraft. At the end of the 1600s, we have something called the Salem Witch Trials. For the Puritans, there was no way that demonic activity would be anchored and allowed in their society of God. Remember, this is the promise that they are the new Canaan. They are the new people of God. They had charters. They had their Westminster Confession. The witch trials in Salem were an attempt to cleanse God's colony again by any means necessary. And it was only time before the Puritan dream ended. And they realized that they were just like the Catholic Church in their philosophy, not in their doctrine. They needed to change it, and they needed to change drastically. Out of the Westminster divines and the Westminster theology arose a group of dissenting brethren. They proposed this. No one person or group can always understand the truth clearly. There are some matters of faith that we can actually differ on, and we can still have unity. We can appreciate diversity. There's no ecclesiastical structure that is void of its issues. In other words, there is no perfect church. It doesn't matter how you manage it. It doesn't matter how you arrange it. If men, sinful men, are involved, sinful men will figure out a way to mess it up. You can guarantee that. Many of us have experienced the difficulties of a great church with difficult, sinful people in it. Leadership structures, conflicts, different things that happen as an outflow of that. They believe, the group of dissenting brethren believe there's a possibility of being unified but very diverse at the same time. They created and they, they labeled something called denominations. Denominations would come to settle itself in America and we would have the rise of Baptists, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Methodists, Anabaptists, and all other kinds of denominations that were still associated with the core of Christianity. What happened at the end of the Puritan movement was a realization that as a church, all of us need to figure out what hills we're going to die on. As a church, there are things that we can celebrate in freedom. We don't have to agree with everything that they're doing across the street, but we can still be united if their doctrine is evangelical in its foundations. We can still have a universal creed that is accepted by all Protestants, all Bible-believing Christians, at all times, everywhere. We're going to call it orthodox theology. And we can differ on some interpretations of some passages, even. 
but there are a few things that we cannot differ on. There are a few doctrines that are so essential to our faith that we cannot put them to, a side, to the side and disagree. They're the things, the differences between the Catholics and the Protestants. There are other things that it's okay. Do you believe that Jesus is gonna return? So do I. Is he gonna return mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib? Up for grabs. Do you believe in a literal thousand-year kingdom that Jesus is gonna reign for the earth before eternity is ushered in? So do I. Are we gonna die on that hill? Not me, anytime soon. There's a lot of things that we can have some diversity over. There's a lot of things that we hold tightly. The uh, end of the Puritan movement told us that toleration in evangel among evangelical Christians can actually be a very good thing. And even though we look out that door and we see 2,000 different denominations and we shake our head that we can't get along better than that, at the end of the day, we're not killing each other. We have a peaceful existence between those who want to split hairs on minor issues. That's okay but hold to the foundational truths. Hold to the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. 100% God and 100% man. Came to the earth, died in human flesh, on a cross, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Rose again the third day, giving us after everlasting life. We hold to the eternal tr existence of God in three persons in one essence. Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed at all times. It is the eternal trinity, but they are one. They are united. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, I am one with the Father. I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He will comfort you. We believe that Jesus is going to return. He will judge the living and the dead. We believe in a holy apostolic, united Christian church. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that final authority rests in Scripture and Scripture alone, 66 books of the Protestant canon of Scripture, and we hold tightly to that. And in matters that differ according to their interpretation, we ultimately say God's word has to win out. We don't believe that there is any human person that stands level with the authority of Scripture or above the authority of Scripture, but that at the end of the day, the truth of Scripture is on a plane in and of itself. Everything we do and practice will ultimately bring us to the truth of that Scripture. Every time we read it, every time we study it, every time we preach it, we preach the truth of the gospel in which it entails. We preach it until it leads, it, leads to the person of Jesus Christ, where everything is completely fulfilled where all the promises of God will one day be realized by his church and by his people throughout all generations forever. We believe in the doctrines on the slideshow that we saw just before this sermon started, and we hold on to those truths. In other truths, we can have freedom to disagree, and we can be a greater church because of it. And it is a blessing to live in the land we live, where we're not tearing each other apart based on those little things and we can gather together and worship God in ways that other generations haven't experienced in the past. And we preserve those truths. As elders, deacons, and pastors, we are faithful to pass down that truth to the next generation and to give those truths to our families.
realizing that if our sons and daughters trust Christ, it is not because of anything special that we did. It is because of the grace of God working in their hearts and in their lives. And so we pray for them over and over again. If you are on board with this kind of theology, this, time, this kind of church community, we would love to have you right here at Tulsa Bible Church. And we would love to do theology and community with you. We would love to do life together with you. And we hope that you'd be a part of this in God's plan for eternity, his historical redemptive plan to redeem everything for his glory and for our ultimate good. Let's pray. And uh, Kyle Jones is about to come up. He's gonna give us a, a little update for missions coming up this next weekend. All right. Father in heaven, thank you so much for um, just the time that we can take to look back on history and see um, places where the church has gone off the path of godliness and wisdom. We also see great uh, people and events, actions that took place that ultimately just draw us closer to you, to the truth of scripture, to the beauty of the gospel, the truth of who you are, and the grace of the gospel message that we know through Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, as we, uh, we move past this, this weekend and this sermon series, I pray that we would be anchored on a historic, orthodox, evangelical faith that we would learn the hills to die on. We would celebrate the freedoms to disagree with other Christians. And we would preserve the truth that you have given us to live by. We thank you for your son Jesus who died for us on a cross. We do everything for him and for his glory. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God. And there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Amen.